Well, we are, um, we started a message series last week. I want to thank Pastor Stephen for getting us started in that as we are in a book in the New Testament called Colossians. Much of the New Testament is a, is a series of letters, most of them written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul. If you read in the book of Acts, you first meet him, his, his name is Saul, and then we understand that's a, kind of the Hebrew or the Jewish kind of transliteration of his name. He, the Greek or Roman version would be Paul. And so Paul wrote many of these letters, and the reason he wrote letters to churches is that he was a, he's traveled in the known world that time and planted churches, started churches, and then he would follow up with letters. Hey, how are you guys doing? Here's some extra instruction. Hey, Andrew, I hear this about you. Let me give you some of that. And the Colossian church was struggling with some false teaching, some what we would call heresy, some misunderstandings or wrong understandings about who Jesus is. Some thoughts of like, well, Jesus couldn't possibly be God and man, so maybe he was just like an angel or he was like a special being. or these. And so Paul had written a letter to address that. If you picked up your bulletin today and you looked at the title of the message, Blameless, you might have thought, well, we must be talking about moms because my mom is perfect. And um, no, no, it's not what it's about. As awesome as moms are, none of them are are perfect. I will say that uh, I've been blessed with a, a terrific mom. I'm married to a, a wonderful mom of my kids. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. So be super good to your mom today if she's uh, still with you. Um, but we're not talking about mom. The word blameless is, in a word, the scandal of the gospel, the scandal, the shock. Of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the message that no one is perfect. But everybody's welcome. It's the message that. That we're all sinners. But grace makes us saints. It's the message that by faith. We don't get what we deserve. And we get what we don't deserve. It's a real good thing. If you feel like you can somehow be. Good enough for God. Which is a lot of people assume. Well, If I just try real hard. If I just really concentrate, I'm going to be good enough for God, and God's going to have to say, okay, come on into heaven, you tried your best. Then a lot would believe that. But if that's, if that's you, I would just say, you have not yet understood just how perfect and holy and pure and righteous and awesome and powerful our God is. It also means you may have misjudged your own self-righteousness, your own ability to be perfect. But if you know you could never be good enough for God, if you know that you cannot measure up in yourself, I'm telling you, you're in good company with the rest of us. Then you're in good company. And and that would mean you're ready for some, some good news. Because I need to tell you, God doesn't love you because you're good. God loves you, and He does love you. He loves you because He is good. Do you understand that? So in Colossians 1, we're gonna, in this passage we're gonna read today, picking up at verse 15. If you've got a Bible, if you go and find that, pull it up in your phone or, or follow along the Bible if if you have one. Uh, by the way, we make Bibles available here on Sundays. You can always pick one up at the Connection Center or at the front. We make them available for you. Week by week. But uh, we're going to get into what's a, a theological subject called the sufficiency of Christ. And it's a fancy way of saying, like we just saying, Jesus is enough. 
Jesus is enough. He's all you need for everything, for life and for salvation and for godliness. Jesus is enough. He is all sufficient. In Colossians uh, 1 from 15 and following, it's possibly, I would think, I would argue that it's the supreme passage uh, about this in the entire Bible. It's, it's, it's incredibly um, powerful uh, from God's word, and I want you to Discover that together. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. This is the New Testament. You're getting pretty deep. Go past Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right? If you ever have a hard time remembering those four books, just think General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how I remember it even today. So um, I'm not that smart, okay? I need help. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Or your translation might say firstborn over creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He, Jesus, existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Verse 21, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. We thank the Lord for his word. Let's be seated together this morning. I wonder if you've ever had an experience so great, so fantastic, you were at a, at a loss as to how to describe it. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you might know what I, what I mean. I, we visited there as a family in 2010. I've got a picture of, of, uh, uh, that I took there. And I remember that the first time we walked to the, to the, the south rim of the canyon, I'm like, oh, that's why they call it the Grand Canyon, not the fairly large canyon. Oh, and I remember trying to explain this. I think it was, I was talking to my parents. I'm like, I, I you just got to go see it for yourself. I can't, I can't describe it to you. It's, it's too grand. <laughs> it doesn't do it justice, right? Or imagine, imagine trying to explain to someone your favorite dish of ice cream. Imagine, for someone who's never had ice cream, imagine trying to describe your favorite flavor of ice cream. Right? Any, like, uh, who's, like, into Rocky Road or who's into, like, Maple Nut, 
right? Or who's in a, like, some kind of coffee flavor ice cream? Come on, friends. Work with me here, right? Okay, that's the good stuff. And you, you can't, you're just like, well, it's like cold and, um, has, it's sweet and cold. That doesn't really sound good. Some of you are gonna go to Ampersand this afternoon because you're just like thinking about ice cream, right? Can't put something so great into words. That's the Apostle Paul, this moment. He is writing, what he's writing might be his own words. It might be a kind of a liturgical hymn or poem of some kind that, that was, others had written, but regardless, his words are grasping. He's trying to find ways to, to express the greatness and the supremacy of Christ. And language fails us. If you're taking notes, you can write this one today. We've got a little insert in your program. Language fails us because Jesus is greater than we can possibly imagine. Jesus is greater than we can possibly imagine. I absolutely love these verses from 15 to 20. And I'm going to try not to, to, to dwell on this for, t- for too long. But I, I just want to walk you through verse by verse out of this passage. where Because these are so important. Verse 15 says that, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. This is not saying that Jesus is like a mere reflection or he's not, you know, he's not the, not the thumbnail on your computer of what, of what the file really is. He isn't sort of a kind of sort of representation by saying that. Paul's saying he is what you see. Remember, we understand, particularly from the Old Testament, that no one can see God and live. And yet we have seen Christ. And in seeing Jesus, we've seen the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is God in the flesh. The visible image, the visible visible version, I guess you could say, of God. He's not created. I think the NIV and ESV say he is the firstborn of creation. That, that's a little confusing for some people because you think, well, doesn't that just mean he was the first one made or the... What was he born somehow? Um, we, we need to understand this kind of sense of firstborn. It means in first position or in first place. Um, in, in, the, in that language and culture in those times, the, the firstborn of the family had extra privileges, but also extra responsibility and extra authority. If you were the firstborn, it means like it was on you. And this, the, the, the usage of, of this here is... That, in terms of his position and his authority, he is in first place. He is supreme. He is firstborn in that sense. He is preeminent before everything else. He existed before anything was, was made. Jesus is begotten of the Father. That means God declares him, you are my son. Psalms talks about that. Compare this to, to you know, the gospel of John, John 1 and 2, maybe you're familiar with this. You've probably heard this before. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That, that, that's, that's a description of who Jesus is, always existed. The, the term, the kind of technical term, he is pre-existent. He existed before anything existed, right? And if you've come in contact with a religion that, that teaches Jesus was created or that Jesus is only kind of like a nice prophet, or that somehow Jesus was a man, but he achieved God's status. If you've kind of heard those teachings, you need to understand that's not the teaching of the Bible. That's not the teaching of Scripture. That's an interpretation of, of trying to say, oh, he's not he's not that great. No, Jesus is God. You need to understand that. And he goes on in verse 16, for through him, Jesus, through Jesus, God created everything 
in the heavenly realms and on earth. The things we can see and the things we can't see. Everything was created by Christ Jesus and for Christ Jesus. Creation is fundamental, foundational to Christian faith. You need to understand, we, we have to grasp this. Because if God did not create everything, he is not God. So there's really two basic perspectives on how the world came to be. Either everything kind of evolved spontaneously out of nothing and became something, or God out of nothing created everything. It does start with nothing. But either God spoke everything into being through Christ, or everything just sort of spoke itself into being. Here's the, here's the real problem with this. If everything just started on its own, what have we done with God? We have a box. Everything is in the box. Everything in the sky that you see, every flower that you smell, every, everything, everything, everything is in this box. If we say it just happened on its own, it means God is also inside that box. Well, if God's in the box, that means we created God in our image. The Bible teaches that God created us in his image. The Bible would say, yes, there's a box and everything's in this box. But God is outside of the box. God made the box and put everything in it. That's, you have to, you have to grasp with that. Now both sides are a step of faith. This faith says, I'm just a happy random accident of the cosmos. I have no meaning, purpose, or value in my life because I'm just a big accident no matter what. Well, that's encouraging, right? Or you can say, God created everything with purpose and intent by design in His image with with a, with a, with a purpose and a future. I kind of like this one a lot better. Don't you? Wouldn't you rather be a person made with purpose and value than just a random accident of the cosmos? <laughs> you need to understand that everything was created. And if, if God did not create everything, you don't need God. And that's why atheism is, is a foundation of evolutionary, con- evolutionary philosophy. It's a belief that there, that God, if there is a God, then he couldn't have possibly created everything. And so therefore you've, you've basically eliminated God. Yeah, I could go get pretty excited about that, but we didn't come here to, to only talk about that. But if also, if randomness is the reason for everything, then the non-material things that God created, like gender, like work, like rest, like marriage, those things also all lose their value, right? If everything just made itself, what does it matter? Male, female, marriage, days of rest, days of work, nothing matters in that system, which is where, you know, we're largely arriving, culturally speaking. Instead, God said, no, I have a plan and a purpose. There's an other for everything. God is, what we say, transcendent. God's above and beyond. And he made with design and purpose, male, female, day and night, light and dark, the earth and the heavens. And on and on it goes. God has created a way for you to know him and experience him through Jesus. It's not by centering yourself, by going inside. No, that's hogwash. It can't be. God can't be, you know, you can't come up with your own God. God is other and he invites us to come to him humbly. 
Anyway, also that was an aside. Verse 17, he says, he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. This is pretty marvelous. There are times I do wish I was a scientist because I would love to be able to talk like nerd style about all this stuff, which I can't do even though I've read about it. But you know, what is the gravitational glue that keeps us all together? Why is it that if, you know, 500 years ago you were sailing with Columbus across the, or more than that, across the ocean, you, the stars you saw then you could navigate by and you could still navigate by them today. Why is everything staying in place? Why is everything consistent? Why does it hold together? Why is it reliable? Why is it that you can you could put on your clock what time the sun's going to come up tomorrow and what time it's going to set tonight? I know it doesn't actually rise. The earth turns. I get that. And the earth is round. Um, there's no flat earthers here. Um, right? What, why is it that that you can count on that because Jesus created everything with order and design and purpose. It can't be random because everything has a, it's like clockwork. It just, and you can count on it. You can rely on it. You know that the seasons are going to come and they're, they're going to change. Why? Because God designed it that way because he loves you. And he, he, he wanted you to be able to say, oh, here's a good time to plant crops. Here's a good time to harvest them. Here's a good time to let the land lay fallow. And so you can count on it. You know all these things that are happening because Jesus made it that way and he holds it all together. He's the glue of the universe down to the cellular molecular level. I, anyway, verse 18, <laughs> Jesus is the head of the church and he's supreme over it all. That gets back to that firstborn word we talked about, that he's, he's in that position of authority and significance over the church. Verses 19 and 20, most importantly, Jesus is the means. It says that God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth. Listen, Jesus is the means of God's reconciliation. God isn't looking to destroy you. He he wants to save you. You you might feel like God's just waiting for me to mess up and then bang, he's going to come in. No, no. God is looking for ways to rescue you, to save you, to introduce you to his grace and his love and his mercy. And that's why as a church we say we're here to make Christ Jesus known. Because Jesus is the only means by which anyone can be saved. And we all need to be saved, right? So whatever notion you have of Jesus, I want you to enlarge it. He is greater than you could possibly imagine. Maybe, maybe when you think about Jesus, you'll see a picture like this, which is really soft and gentle. And I mean, I don't know. Not that inspiring. Comforting, perhaps. And there's times when I need Jesus to just comfort, just give me that place of rest. And he promises that too. But I also like the picture of Jesus with a sword on a horse riding. I mean, you need to enlarge your picture of Jesus. When you look at the stars tonight, I want you to think, that's just scratching the surface of what he made. How big is a God that can speak and all that happens? Now, Verses 21 and 22 take this concept of, of God's reconciling work even far, farther. Because Paul writes that they were enemies of God, but God reconciled them. Do you understand this? That only the person who sinned against can offer reconciliation. Reconciliation means to bring things back into alignment, right? To correct relationships. Imagine that, um, what would be an example? Let's say, let's say you take your car to the car wash and uh, in the process you realize that, that they, they, someone stole your phone out of their car. 
and uh, did some damage and just cleaned out the change purse and the change drawer in your car. And you're like, oh, I cannot believe this. All right. But now you've been sinned against. Now you go back to that car wash and the, you find the employee and you say, hey, I just want to tell you, I forgive you. I, I know what you did was wrong, but I'm going to I'm going to release you. I'm not going to hold that against you. I want to I want to be friends with you. Seems like you have some needs. How can I help you? Right. That would be an act of reconciliation. But the person who committed the crime can't reconcile. The person who committed the crime could say, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But it's up to the person who's been sinned against to do the work of reconciling. That's what God did. God was the one who's been sinned against by us. And that's why God has to be the one to extend reconciliation to you and to me. Paul makes what we already said, you know, that this is a scandal of truth, a scandalous claim that through Christ, and again, he's speaking to Christian believers here. He says, you are holy and blameless. You are reconciled. NIV or ESV says, holy and without blemish. Paul's saying this. If you're taking notes, you can write this one down. Every believer has a blameless record. Every believer has a blameless record. How can this be? How, how can it be that I have a blameless record? Because I'm a sinner, right? I mean, did you have a perfect record yesterday or even this morning? No, I violate God's laws even though I don't want to. I do and I think and I say things I ought not do and say and think. So how can I be blameless before God? I mean, imagine it this way. Let me give you another illustration. You're driving your car. You get pulled over for speeding. And the police officer says, you realize what you, what you, do you know why I pulled you over? I always love that question. I don't get it very often, just so you know. It's been a long time since I heard that question. But anyway, they, you're supposed, uh, I have no idea, officer. Well, you're doing 62 in a 40 zone. Well, I guess I was speeding. Now the officer takes out his ticket book, writes up the ticket, tears it off, hands it to you, but it's his name on the spot and his license plate number on the thing. You think, what? He says, don't worry, I'm, I'm taking your crime on me. I'm taking your punishment on me. I'm taking your violation and putting it on myself, right? That would be a blameless record where you sinned, but someone else takes the blame. So Jesus is down. You're not condemned. You're blameless by your faith in him. This is hard to understand. In Christ, every sin and every misdeed was paid for at the cross, past, present, and future. I am guilty, but if I put my faith in Christ Jesus, my sins are charged against Jesus, against the cross, and I am declared not guilty, blameless, holy and without blemish. And only because, you know, only Jesus could accomplish this, and that only because he is fully God... Right? He is the, he's the visible image of the invisible God only because he is fully God. Which means he carries God's mercy and God's judgment and God's righteousness. And he was fully human flesh. He was fully person, fully man, which means that he could take all our sin and wrongdoing on himself. So as verse 22 says, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Only only a per, human person could take on the sins of all the other humans. And only if only a person who's completely sinless could take on someone else's sins. And that's what Jesus did. Fully man, fully sinless, took all your sins and mine upon himself, went to the cross and paid the price that you paid. The Bible says that the payment, the wage for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Only Jesus could do that. And so if you are blameless, that is, if you've personally put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
Now you have a choice. So you can either, you know, go on and, and sin and, and carry Jesus around like a get out of jail free card from a Monopoly game. Hey, I'm going to do whatever I want. I got Jesus. I'm forgiven. He's covered my sins. Yada, yada, yada. Right? Or you could recognize just how remarkable Christ's work is. And, and you could live in response by humbly seeking to live a holy and pleasing life. In other words, did Christ set you free to sin? Or did Christ set you free from sin? That's the difference. My faith in Jesus does not make me sinless. But my faith in Jesus is not given by so that I have a license to do as I please in the flesh, in my body. Because you received salvation by faith. Your faith is demonstrated by repentance, by turning from sin and turning to God. And you invited Jesus, if you're a believer, you invited Jesus to take your old life and give you a new life in its place. Verse 23 reminds us that freedom from sin and condemnation is contingent upon continuing in faith. There's conditional. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. And here's where religion and grace conflict. Maybe you've maybe you've been around religion before, but you'll know this, that in religion you have to live a good life to please God. But in grace, by faith, you seek to live a holy life because God is already pleased. Right? Religion says, be good to please God. Grace says, uh, grace says God is pleased. So you live a, a holy life out of that. In religion, you obey God out of fear of punishment. But under grace, by faith, you realize your punishment's done. So you obey God out of love and gratitude. For the one who makes you blameless. In religion, it's all about what you do. Right? In grace, it's all about who you are in Christ Jesus. And the who you are stirs your desire to live a pleasing life to God. A holy life. And I know this all seems a little woo up in the clouds when you're in the day-to-day of just trying to get through each day. And you got money problems. If you got kids and you got grandkids and you got relationship stress and you got health concerns, you think... I, I don't need the theological stuff, Brian. I just got to get through today. But when you start with this profound truth of who you are in Christ, that your identity in Christ is based on what Jesus did and the goodness of God and not what you've done, that in him you are reconciled to God, that in him you are blameless, you're not con- accused, you're not condemned, that gives you the freedom to say, hey, I can do this. I can make it through because of who I am as a foundational level. Your identity in Christ grants you authority to live in Christ fully alive. Well, one more thing I want you to write down if you're taking notes today. It's this. Because of all this, you can live like your faith matters. You can live like your faith matters. Verse 23, Paul writes, You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received and heard When you heard the good news or another translation puts a little more eloquently, if indeed you continue the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you've heard. Your identity in Christ, right, that you're blameless by faith, invites you to stand firm in faith and live a life with assurance, with confidence, with hope. All right, more Bible words. What does that actually mean? It means that in the day-to-day grind of life, you can turn to Christ for anything and for everything. You live like your faith matters. It means that you pray for your kids when they're struggling. You you ask the Lord to make his presence known to them. It means you talk to God while you're 
you know, doing your chores, you're sitting in class. It, it means you, you lay those bills out on the table and you say, okay, God, <laughs> I'm going to need some help here. Right? It, it means you cry out to him when you're struggling. It means you thank him when he delivers you out of a temptation to sin. Blameless means you act on your faith by asking the Lord for courage and for opportunities to share your faith with others. It means you practice generosity, even though what you have to give might be nothing more than a dollar. I love the word that the New Living Translation uses here where it says, don't drift away from the assurance you receive. That word drift is so powerful, so descriptive, because most Christians who find themselves kind of out of touch with God didn't get there on purpose. They didn't deliberately reject their faith. They just drifted. They just coasted. They they just got busy and and distracted and preoccupied with stuff and, and all of a sudden they look up and their boat's in the weeds. They drifted. Paul says, don't drift. Don't drift. Continue to stand firm. To hold your crown. It's a charge to live like your faith matters. If you're going to think about who I am in Christ, I want you to know this. I want you to think about the truth that Jesus is greater than you could possibly imagine. That every believer has a blameless record and that you can live like your faith matters. I, I would hate for you to, to kind of just think this is about religion. I want you to know that the personal invitation, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the invitation is for you personally to say, Jesus, I would trust you now as my Savior. I'm going to invite you, Jesus, to forgive my sin. I want to turn from my old life. I don't want to turn and follow you. Jesus, I want to declare you as the Lord and leader of my life. That's what it means to become a Christian, a person who turns away from their own way of doing things. You stop trusting yourself to be good enough for God. You say, God, I'm going to put all my faith in you by my faith in Jesus Christ. If that's something we can help you with, we'd love to talk with you through that after the service. Let's bow in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you are enough. We sang about that today. You are all sufficient. Everything you have done is good. Jesus, I thank you that you created all things for yourself, but also for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. God, the fact that you made everything is incredibly satisfying, incredibly powerful to know that I'm not an accident. I'm not, I just didn't rise up out of some soup. Lord, you, you have purpose and design that's for me and for every person in this room. Jesus, I thank you that you hold all things together, that that nothing's happening uh, out of your knowledge and your awareness. God, I just I believe you grieve when we when we do those things that are are destructive and damaging to ourselves, to each other, to this world. And God, we just say today we want to we want to know you, Jesus, as the one who is supreme. We want to know you as the one who is all sufficient. We want to know you as the one who is enough. God, enlarge our, enlarge our vision of you, I pray. Lord, for the person who's here today and just, just worried about tomorrow, struggling with what's to come this week, God, would you, would you help them to understand that by faith in you, you are enough. You are enough for that doctor's appointment this week, for that bill that's due at the end of the week. Lord, for that exam that's coming up, whatever it is, Jesus, you are enough as we put our faith in you and we stand firm in it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your presence here. In Jesus' name, amen.